Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Thank you for joining us today. My guest is Yi Chow, a self-proclaimed armchair oceanographer and the founder and CEO of SeaTrek, a company that designs and manufactures energy harvesting solutions that generate electricity from naturally occurring temperature differences in the ocean waters. He pioneered the Ocean Thermal Energy Harvesting Project at JPL and was the PI for the Solo Trek project funded by the Ocean, oh, sorry, the Office of Naval Research. Yi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Yi, self-proclaimed armchair oceanographer, that is not something you hear every day. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the oceans? Yeah, I from from a young age, I interested in earth science. So I got my earth science degree in college. And then I went to Princeton and then tried to look for a specialty. And then I have a choice to do atmospheric physics or ocean physics. And my advisor said, if you want to do atmospheric physics, you are able to forecast the weather. I said, that <laughs> sounds like a boring job. And then may I choose the ocean. Sounds Oceans are less studied and poorly known and a lot of discovery and exploration. And that's satisfied my curiosity. I hear you have seasickness. So I guess, how, uh, how did you kind of think about going into ocean science and ocean physics when uh, it's not something that sits well with your body? I, at Princeton, I studied theoretical oceanography. So I used computers and pencil and paper uh, in those days. And I studied the theory of how ocean circulation is. After I graduated uh, from Princeton, I went to UCLA for a couple of years and then, uh, and then move on to Jet Propulsion Lab. And I, I went to my first cruise and, uh, for a couple of days, and I cannot go into the cabin because I, I, I have to lie down my bunk bed if I go inside. So I basically stay outside for many days in a row, and that's basically the last the research cruise I have. That's hilarious. Can, can you walk me through what theoretical oceanography actually means? I don't think I fully understand what that means or what you're studying. So basically, we apply the fluid dynamics to the ocean. We study where the ocean uh, circulation, how the ocean circulate, and then we move from warm water to, uh, to from equator to the pole, uh, the transport of the heat, and then how to distribute, modulate climate and weather. We use computers to develop a digital twin, basically, in the computer, and then try to use the computer to simulate what ocean circulation look like. Huh, interesting. I remember I was a mechanical engineer, but I had to take fluid dynamics, and it was one of my favorite tests, not my favorite classes, but in the test, they had us design essentially an amusement park with a bunch of waterways and Mm -hmm. fountains and things like that. It was actually really interesting just understanding how fluids work and how different it is than other types of of more solid dynamics. Right. Almost every discipline, you need a digital twin because that's the easy way to do experiments. 
because the ocean is uh, is applied science is such a big uh, uh, domain, um, occupies such a big space, you cannot do controlled experiment. So the way to develop a computer model so you can do a controlled experiment, you can do a sensitivity analysis, you can run different scenarios. That's how we predict climate change and you know, using computer models. And so in that research, was that really what you were focusing the efforts on is climate change and how the oceans were kind of an early canary in the coal mine or were there other things you were also measuring? My PhD thesis is about El Nino back in the 80s. Very few people know about El Nino. We have very little understanding how El Nino works. So I spent uh, my PhD time to study uh, how El Nino started, how it's been developed, you know, how often it occurs, and what's the influence to the atmosphere, the climate circulation. So that's how I started the El Nino research early on. What did you learn? Basically, I produced the first computer model. It's the longest simulation at that time, uh, the evolution of El Nino, to basically tracing the origin of the El Nino from the Eastern Pacific and to the Western Pacific. So it almost like study the trajectory, how it evolves uh, ahead of the El Nino so we can have ability to predict uh, in advance when El Nino will occur. So at that time, the predictability is probably known. So I helped the community to produce the first uh, computer simulation of El Nino. That's so cool. Do you know if people have taken that research and continue to use it to predict oh, future? Yeah, yeah people uh, adapt uh, some of the computer models and then even develop better ones and then try to develop forecasting capability. Now we can anticipate El Nino is coming a couple of seasons ahead. So I guess even though your advisor told you not to go into, or if you went into one direction, you'd be predicting the weather. I guess you got a little piece of that anyways. That's right. Predicting Earth science and atmosphere ocean is fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, curious to hear how connected those two are, or are they not? They are. The atmosphere ocean is coupled system. A lot of this here, heat and the carbon uh, exchange between the ocean and atmosphere. So El Nino is a coupled phenomena, interaction between atmosphere and ocean. So you almost need both to have this positive feedback to develop a full-blown El Nino. Mm, yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. And so walk me through what you're working on now. So explain to the listeners, what is C-Trek and ultimately what led you to this type of company and product? So I spent my PhD doing computer models and then spent the next 10, 20 years developing satellite technology to study ocean from space. Uh, during that process, I realized and then there's really no way to study the deep ocean uh, from space. And then unless you go on ships and then you know, I'm, I have a seasick. I cannot go very long time in the, on the ships. So I start getting into robotic, underwater robotic. And then my dream is to send millions of robots underwater so I can sit in my armchair to watch data come back real time and then have my dashboard and then try to look at the real global ocean, how it evolved from day to day, from year to year. I love that. You get to be the uh, data scientist puppeteer. <laughs> That's right. Well, that's fascinating on the using space to study um, oceans. What information can you actually pick up from satellites or from space to explore measure a variety of different parameters? You know, the oldest technology measure the temperature of the sea surface. 
Um, my career at GPL developed the first NASA satellite measure salinity from space. So basically, we're detecting how salty the ocean water is from the sky. Basically, you can detect the wind blowing uh, at the surface. You can also detect the wave height, how strong the waves. So there, you can also detect the, uh, how 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 productive ocean is. We call it ocean color. So there's a variety of different parameters. Uh, now, you know, over the last couple of decades, uh, satellite oceanography uh, has been growing and then to deliver data almost real time on the globe. Huh. That's fascinating. And my guess is, you know, because it's in the atmosphere, satellites can pick up so much larger of a surface area exactly. as opposed to just sampling. Exactly. And then they have limitations. They cannot see through the surface. And so that's why the underwater robotic come in. So I want to devote my... Uh, the next decade to to enable underwater robots to collect more data below the sea surface. There's no other way to collect those data sets. Interesting. On the, the salinity one was particularly interesting. How does a satellite measure salinity of the ocean? That's a great question. It's basically measured emissivity. So almost like any uh, body radiate, send the radiation into uh, space. So basically, the first parameter you can determine that radiation is temperature, is the temperature uh, dependent. But there's a weak link with the salinity. So salty water, fresh water also modulate that uh, emission from the sea surface. So by measure very accurate the emission from the sea surface, and then you know the temperature, you can derive the salinity. That's so fascinating. It's interesting. Um, This is a weird parallel, but friends of mine have started a company that is democratizing continuous glucose monitoring. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, it's just looking at electrical charges in the interstitial fluids of your body to measure Mm -hmm. your glucose. And so it's interesting to see how all these signals, when you put them together, can right. give you a data point that's actually unrelated. It's, it's exactly. fascinating. It's like a remote sensing, right? Yeah. So you, you measure things without touching, whether it's next to your forehead, measure your temperature, or you, you know, hundreds of miles in the sky, measure the temperature in the water. Yeah. So ultimately now with SeaTrack, you're in the oceans, you're exploring, uh, you know, exploring the oceans, but you at the end of the day are an energy company. So Mm -hmm. explain to me what type of robots you make today and how you're actually creating energy from from the ocean. So we get to this uh, research because uh, the robot need energy to power them. So ocean is very big, is logistically difficult to change batteries. Almost like if you have a robot at home, you vacuum your floor. After a couple hours, they're running on a battery. Basically, they died under your bed or next to your sofa. And or, or they can uh, automatically go back to the charging station. But in the ocean, there's no such a thing as like a plug, charging station. So basically, when battery dies, the robot will die with it. Or you have a boat. You have to be nearby, and then you have to recover the robots and then replace the battery. So it's very extremely expensive to deploy robotic me- uh, vehicles in the ocean. So that's one of the biggest challenges we encounter to collect data in the deep sea. And I run into a scientific paper almost by accident. And, you know, there's a a professor uh, envision ocean have unlimited energy uh, called the thermal energy due to the temperature difference and the warm seawater at the surface and colder depths. If you, for some reason, you can convert that heat 
into electricity, then essentially you can have robot is self-powered by the environment. And then that's where it started about 15 years ago. And then to dig in deeper and deeper, and now we have a prototype and then we release our first uh, commercial product, try to uh, provide unlimited power to those robotic uh, vehicles. And so the t- how big of a temperature differential do you actually need to be able to capture that and, and harness that for energy? We need about a 10 degree C or 18 degree Fahrenheit. And then um, 70% of the ocean have those temperature difference. A few places where shallow area in the polar region doesn't have a temperature is fairly uniform from the surface to the bottom. But a majority of the ocean have those uh, temperature difference where you have this natural occurring temperature difference, and then we are able to uh, harvest them into electricity and then power the sensors on board, uh, increase the robot's lifetime and carry more sensors and then sustainable. So we don't leave battery behind and then, you know, pollute our ocean with lithium batteries. Yeah. And what is the, the, I guess, depth difference to get that 10 degrees C, 18 degrees Fahrenheit uh, temperature? Meaning, that's like, is, depends, is it yeah. pretty big? Yeah, that depends on the region, depends on the season. Could be tens of meters, sometimes can be a couple hundred meters. Uh, just depends on how mixing in the ocean is and then um, where you are. In Mediterranean, for example, in the summertime, is very shallow, uh, tens of meters. You get, you know, pretty high gradient of temperature. Uh, sometime in the middle latitudes, it could go to hundreds of meters sometime. This is a silly question, but does the robot need to go back and forth, back and forth? Is that how it works? Our first product uh, is basically a a portable system attached to the robots. Uh, So every time robot need energy, you have to find the temperature difference. So basically you go up and down, you find your own electricity, basically. So we're making a joke saying you look for temperature difference, so you eat those temperature difference. You get energy, you get charged, and you can do work later. That is so cool. And how, from an actual science and technology perspective, how does that work? So the robot says, you know, hey, I need energy. I need to go find that temperature differential. What does it do? How is it actually capturing that and turning it into something that's usable? So basically, we use phase change material. This material you 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 take for granted of your your heat pad, you you heat up in microwave, or you keep your food cold. So basically, phase change material is able to bring the heat into the material itself, and then they changing phase from solid to liquid, and then they expand in the volume. So essentially, we turn the thermal energy of the heat into mechanical expansion, and that expansion we harvest in, from kinetic energy to electricity. Huh. That is fascinating. It's actually, um, this brings me back to college. When I was at Stanford, one of the classes I took uh, my last year, we got matched up with different companies to work mm-hmm. on pro- projects or essentially problems. And the company I got matched with was a class eight sleeper truck company. Mm-hmm. And their challenge was every year, these huge trucks wasted something like $60,000 worth of fuel by idling to keep the cabin warm when the drivers Mm -hmm. were sleeping for the mandatory Mm -hmm. eight hours. So our solution was to actually store the heat coming from the exhaust when it was driving in a phase change material and then slowly release it back. We used a paraffin, but slowly released it back over eight hours via this fan system 
uh, while the driver was sleeping so they could turn off the car. So I got to kind of experience a lot about phase change materials, but I feel like it's an underutilized, uh, fascinating, fascinating magic. It's perfect. We use paraffin and depends on the geographic area, you will use a variety of different type of paraffin materials with different change, phase change temperature. It's relatively cheap material, as you know, people use uh, for heat storage. Uh, it's very cheap and then it's very scalable. So the more material we are using, we can generate more electricity. So essentially, we can customize our energy system depends on the demand of the electricity by sensors and the vehicles. I should have asked this before, but just for our listeners' sake, can you actually define what a phase change material is for people who have never heard that topic before? So basically, when they change phase, water and ice, is a, is a, is you, you, they change phase from, from liquid to solid, uh, except when water uh, changing phase, and when they go from liquid to the solid, they actually expand in volume. So in the East Coast, if you leave the water in your pipe, you could have a broken pipe, right, because of the, the frozen pipe expanding in volume. Uh, most of the phase-changing material, like paraffin, um, they, when, they, when they get melted from solid to liquid, they expand in volume. So liquid take more space than solid. So that's kind of the 10% expansion we take typically harvesting those mechanical energy into electricity. So cool. And so at the end of the day, what is the grand vision for C-Track? Is it still to build the machines that can go to the depths of all the oceans or is it yeah. more on the energy side? Yeah, I think uh, in order to fully understand the ocean, to have 100% awareness, we need millions of drones in the water to collect data, to help us to you know, locate the device. And then there's no GPS underwater, so you have to communi- you know, communicate by acoustic, typically. And the range of those acoustic uh, communication is relatively short. So almost like you have a self, you need a cell phone tower every 10 miles. So you can imagine how big the earth is and every 10 miles, there's an estimate you need about 10 million repeaters in order to, to let a precision to know every, everything everywhere. So if you lose a black box, for example, from the mission airplane, and, and there's no GPS location to locate the bottom of the ocean, but if you have 10 million of these repeaters, you can pretty much pinpoint everywhere if you have an acoustic signal. So, so that's kind of our vision is how do you power these millions of robots underwater? So essentially, this robot is going to be, have to be cheap in order to be scalable and then have to be self-powered from the environment because you cannot change like batteries of 10 million machines. And um, and then they have to be scalable uh, scalable to power more sensors from optical sensor, acoustic sensor, measure the environmental parameters like temperature, the physical state of the water, or the health of the water, oxygen, pH, uh, as part of the climate change. Hmm. And as you add more sensors and sensing capabilities to the robot, does that also require more energy consumption? Of course, every sensor requires more energy, and that's where our energy com- system come in. We, we provide a scalable system. We can provide more and more power uh, to meet the demands. 
Is there any, uh, you know, we were talking before about uh, space and satellites and a lot of the ways that it's interconnected with oceans. Is there any way to leverage satellites as well as some of these underwater drones and have them talk to each other so that you don't need those 10 million repeaters? They are complementary because in the middle of the ocean, we, we need the satellite communication at the surface. So all these robots today come to the surface, talk to satellites, bring the data to your iPhone, smartphones. So we are using those satellites for communication already, not only for data collection, but also satellite communication. There's the 30, 40 uh, communication satellites. You can reach any part of the ocean at the surface. So almost like at the surface, you have a satellite communication. Under the surface, you need those acoustic repeaters. So it's a combination of those two networks uh, make the complete transparent of the ocean. And I guess one other thing that seems to be a little bit of a parallel in space is temperature differentials. So is there a similar, naturally occurring too, is there a similar phenomenon that you could take advantage of using the air and temperature differentials in the air to create energy? That's a great question. We just have a new project started this year. It's an R&D project funded by uh, the the U.S. Navy to develop an air-sea energy harvesting system. Uh, potentially we can deploy on top of the ice in the Arctic Ocean. Uh, so air is minus 20 degrees C, ocean is almost zero. So you have an air-sea temperature difference. So we envision to develop an a energy power system on, in the Arctic, on the Arctic ice. So we can power weather stations, communication beacons, and under ice instruments. So we don't have to run diesel field, deliver diesel to icebreakers, which is very costly and logistically challenging. Wow. Yeah, I can't even imagine logistically trying to deal with that. (laughs) That's very cool. Any other um, kind of interesting research projects or things that are uh, top of mind right now? So we another project we are developing uh, underwater charging station, kind of the scale up version of the portable system. So as we're getting more and more energy uh, to the system, is very heavy and the wall is very big, so it's really difficult for the robots to carry. So we envision to have a separate charging system, and they can generate a lot of power and and then store in the system. So the robots can come back, just like a, your robot machine, come back to the charging station, and they can they can go out to a mission, and then three days later, they're running out of battery, they come back to the station, they get charged, and they go off to do other mission again. And essentially, does the station have something attached to it where it's constantly going up and down and constantly exactly. generating energy? Exactly. Got it. Very, very cool. It's very clever. Uh, you know, you've been pioneering so much of this just novel research. What have you guys tried that just didn't work that you were, you know, experimenting with? Ocean is very challenging experiment environment. So, you, you know, you need a lot of, uh, you, the deeper you go, you need to be strong. There's a lot of pressure as you go deep. We go thousands of meters sometime. Uh, there's certainly a lot of testing required before you out, go out to the ocean. And then ocean is not very forgiven if it fails and then you don't see your robots back. So we have to do a lot of testing in the lab and then different materials. We don't want to over-design the system so that too heavy and too bulky. Uh, sometimes we have a too small margin and then, you know, sometime in the lab and it, it does fail and then fail the test of the pressure, for example. And we do have to be careful. Sometimes the, the high pressure test is, is dangerous. So 
you know, we have to make sure and when they explode, everybody far away, we have a bulletproof blanket to cover everything, nobody get hurt. So, and then we deal with fission materials, a lot of hydraulic oil, a lot of water. And when we started the company, we rented a, the facility on the second floor, our landlord get really upset. And then they said, can you move, find another place so you can, <laughs> you don't. You You're don't. not a good tenant. <laughs> so as soon as we see our uh, pressure test chamber, our oil and, and the water, and then we get kicked out pretty quickly. And so when you um, when you're deploying some of these new robots, do you personally go out on the water and do that, or do you stay in your armchair and just oversee yeah, from my, a distance? I, I collect data through through my smartphone, my laptop, and then I have smart engineers to uh, do much better than I do. <laughs> what have been um, some of the most interesting learnings so far from your initial tests? We. Um, uh, so we it's a is a life is an endurance test. So basically, um, uh, one of the challenges, and then in order to test our system, we have to uh, essentially we let the robot run a long, long time. That's really um, a difficult thing to test. And then the longest test we did is uh, about uh, a year and a half to deploy a robot in the water and they drift in the ocean, perform as it is after a year and a half, and then. Um, you know, the engineer said that we would be nice to recover, so we we can um, uh, we can see what works, what fails, and then we never designed to be recovered. So so that, that we deploy in Hawaii, and then actually uh, uh, we find this sailor by accident, a UK sailor, go around the globe, and then uh, going from Hawaii to Dutch Harbor, and then he saw my ad in the yacht club. He called me up and saying, I'm going to Dodge Harbor. I can help you. So basically, I got volunteered to recover our vehicle 600 miles from Honolulu. So uh, amazing. Amazing, amazing sailor and then solo sailor and then go around the globe. So I, I realized there's a lot of people in the ocean and, and then using the ocean to do the exploration. Absolutely. And I'm sure there's ways, you know, they'd be thrilled and excited to partner with you and to you know help in some of the research you're pioneering it's, right. it's very interesting um i had one other question before um before we wrap things up but oh yes okay so you mentioned before that if essentially if this is successful and you're able to continually capture energy these robots are self-sustaining in perpetuity but the oceans are a pretty rough environment in general mm-hmm. you have the pressure you have the temperature you have salinity how long do you think one of these robots can actually survive assuming that the energy is not the problem it's dependent on the sensor it really depends what kind of sensor we are using some sensors have much longer endurance like if you measure temperature it's a pretty simple sensor but if you measure salinity you, you need measure conductivity so they are a lot of the time uh, the instrument get foul we call the biofouling so you're basically growing bugs on your equipment or optical sensor you pretty quickly you cannot see much you know you, you know you see the barnacles and then growing on, on top of your sensors um, so we also try to work with uh, a number of in the companies developing anti-fouling technology and device. So we can either you 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 can mechanical wipe just like your car wiping your your light, or we can wipe the sensors, or we can use the UV light to shine them once in a while so they don't grow on the surface. You'll want to clean. 
um, or you do some laser technology to clean up once in a while. So there's a number of technology we are looking into. Uh, since you have unlimited energy, now you can really clean the sensors and make them last longer. So we are uh, enable, uh, enabling this new industry to even extend the lifetime of the sensors and traditionally it's not possible. You've essentially created the perpetual motion machine, which is... We're trying to get longer endurance so we can reduce the cost of collecting data because we need so much data. The more uh, cost reduction to collect data, the more data you're going to have. And then we'll help you to monitor the health of the ocean, how they interact with the weather and climate. The hurricanes, for example, you can if you know the ocean really well, how deep the warm water will be, and then you can improve the intensity prediction of the hurricanes as well. Wow. In terms of who cares the most about the data you're collecting, is it mostly governments or are there other companies or entities that also care a lot about this data? Even though we are focused on the research government so far for research and exploration, there's a number of industries emerging we call the blue economy. Uh, there's a number of industries and then the, the industry come to my mind emerging is as we move the fish farm offshore or seaweed farm or the aquaculture business. And they need a lot of information to do a precision farming. If you can do precision agriculture to grow crop in, on land, and they need a lot of information from the ocean. They need to know the temperature. They need to know the health of the ocean. Do they have enough oxygen? Uh, if the storm is coming, you can predict uh, where it is coming, and they can move their cages. They can potentially dive in deeper in the ocean to avoid some harmful conditions. So there's a lot of information you can inform those industry, make better decisions. I've been fascinated about how much technology, uh, agriculture and fisheries and things like that have actually adopted. I think a lot of times people in tech assume that those are laggard industries, but honestly, some of the, some of the things that they're analyzing and data they're using is pretty pretty amazing. It is. And then we are running out of proteins, right, as the increasing population. And there's so much land we have. And then farming on land, you know, growing a fishing farm, fishing on land, you know, you have a, fish, a shellfish farm, you have all kind of farms on land. It's just not very sustainable. Near shore conditions, you're going to do a lot of pollution. So moving this offshore and have a lot of advantages. Absolutely. Well, Yi, this has been a fascinating conversation. The last question I like to ask guests is, has there been a piece of advice that you've been given either in your career or your life that really sticks with you and is words that you live by? Um, follow your instinct, I guess. I worked for the government for 20 years and then took me about a year to decide to spin off from Caltech and my comfortable job and nice salary and, and then uh, start up the company. Um, it's really hard to make that decision. There's so many uncertainty, a lot of risks, as you know, startup company, most of them fails within three years. And um, so I've been struggling um, to make that decision. And then there's no, no answer. There's no certainty you can make that decision. So finally, I have to make decision based on partial information, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of risk. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, I guess the advice I give to those people is if you really feel empowered and then, you know, you really want to do it and go ahead and do it. 
follow your, your passion. Well, I and I'm sure a lot of other people are very happy you decided to take the leap. I'm excited to watch C-Track and watch you uh, progress and all the robots that you build. Um, for the listeners that want to learn more, where should they go and find out information about you and C-Track? C-Track.com, our website. Um, follow our Twitter, C-Track Inc. Awesome. Well, Yi, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much.